our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine, as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It is not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. Welcome back to Our Deepest Fear with your host, Rome Zop. Today, we have a very special guest. She's on a mission to make transparency a game changer in the world. After going from medical school to prison for killing somebody in a car accident behind a horrific crack cocaine addiction, she used writing to pull herself up and save her own life. Her best-selling book, What Goes Up, was written from behind bars when she faced a 40-year prison sentence. After serving two and a half years in prison, she returned to society and rebuilt her relationships, life, and career. Nine years later, on the exact same day her wreck killed somebody, her first grandchild was born with severe brain damage from a birth injury. Immediately, she blamed herself and thought it was a punishment for her past. She became distant and the guilt of it all put her back into her past where she felt toxic all over again. Misty realized she was letting her past rob her of her future and was tired of hiding behind shame and guilt. She decided it was time to become transparent about her experiences in hope of teaching others about overcoming their worst to live their best, and also about self-forgiveness. With newfound clarity of her why, she rewrote her book, changing it from a dark tone of anger and blame to one of accountability and forgiveness. Misty is now an award-winning speaker, best-selling author, successful host of Dare to Share with Misty Lane talk show, and the host of her Write to Ignite Women's Empowerment Retreats, where she teaches how to use writing as therapy. She founded the hashtag Be That One movement that encourages others to step up and share their life experiences with transparency to educate others so we can judge less and mentor more. She has a full-time nuclear medicine career, was recently named third in the next Global Impactor competition, and serves as vice president on the Chemo Buddies for Life nonprofit board. Welcome, Misty. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You sound like you've got a lot going on. I love it. I do. I stay very busy. <laughs> All right. So I, I mean, yeah, I, I got to ask, right? You said, did you grow up um, in, in Texas or Louisiana? I grew up in Texas. Yeah. My whole life lived there. Um, I didn't move away. I, I actually moved away to Albuquerque, New Mexico to go to medical school and mm-hmm. um, stayed there about 20 years. That's where I fell into my cocaine addiction. Well, I didn't fall into it. I, I actually chose it. <laughs> um, and then after I got out of prison, my mom had my youngest son. So she was living in Louisiana at the time. So I moved there to be with her. And plus my dad was dying. He was on hospice and he was in Louisiana as well. 
So now that I'm back down in this area, I've just, you know, all, my kids are have established and, and made roots here. So I've just never left again. I love it. How, how did you get into smoking crack and coke? Man, it's, it's all about not respecting your moments of choice, you know, not realizing that that one choice becomes your lifetime of decisions. I, um, you know, I used to blame my ex-husband because I found out right after I got into med school, I found out he had a woman pregnant and I was very naive. I was, grew up in the Texas beauty pageant system. You know, I had a lot of confidence and self-esteem and when I found out he cheated, I instantly internalized everything and thought, well, I must not be good enough. Something's wrong with me. Never thought that it was something wrong with him. You know, it's all about me. So I became severely depressed. Um, I, you know, left him, got really vulnerable, started dating any man that would give me the validation I was seeking, any attention. It didn't matter the caliber of man. If he was into me, I was into him because I, I, I was starving for that validation. And I started dating someone three or four months into our relationship. I found out he was, um, he would, he was smoking pot a lot, which, you know, that wasn't bothering me so much. I mean, I wasn't, I didn't do any drugs. Um, but one day I had bought him tickets to a Dallas Cowboys football game for his birthday. And we were driving to Dallas from Albuquerque and he stopped on the side of the road and he pulled out, a, did a line of cocaine with a dollar bill rolled up. I said, what are you doing? <laughs> He's like, just try it. And I'm like, no way. What are you doing? You're crazy. He's like, just try it. I promise you're going to love it. And for that split second, Rome, I just didn't, you know, I guess fast forward in my mind as fast as it could go. I was thinking I did everything I thought I did right. And it got me nowhere. So what the hell is this about? I'm going to try this and see where it gets me. And I made that choice to try it. And it, it was just, um, it was the wrong choice. <laughs> And I had never been a drinker or smoker. I was hit by a drunk driver when I was 15, almost died. So I was very against drugs and alcohol growing up. Um, but it took me to a place. Um, it gave my mind that escape that I, that I was starving and looking for where perfectionism didn't matter. Adultery didn't matter. I didn't have any responsibilities. Um, you know, it just gave me that, that peace of mind that, that I needed at the time in my life. And I got addicted to that. That's what addicted, you know, that's where, that's where the, the, the affinity to it was for me was that, and that progressed. Um, I did that for about five or six months, I guess. And I was able to manage that. The, the lines of Coke, the high was longer. I could manage that. One night uh, he had invited some friends over and they started cooking it up and rocking it into crack cocaine. Well, I'd never even smoked cigarettes and they were trying to show me how to smoke it. I, I, I couldn't do it. I, you know, there's a technique involved and, you know, I was like, whatever, I can't do this. And then the perfectionist in me said, okay, I'm going to master this technique. I'm going to get this down. And by the time I learned how to do, you know, put the flame on and off the things you have to do, I was a full blown 100% crack addict. And within the next five months, it took me down to where I was sleeping on the floor in the bathroom at the hospital. I was having to take a hit in between patients outside in the parking lot in my car I was staying up three and four and five days at a time. I was, uh, you know, running out of money, um, doing things I had never done before, you know, and it just progressed that fast. And that went on and on and on. I guess right at the one year mark, my family knew something was wrong. My kids, especially, they were only kindergarten and third grade at the time, but they knew, you know, I was this super mom, soccer, you know, I did everything PTA. And then all of a sudden mom's behind a closed door in the bedroom all the time. So, um, I actually reached out to my dad and I said, you know, dad, I need some help. 
He's like, what's going on with you, Misty? And I told him and I went and put myself into a rehab. Um, and it didn't work. Let's just say it didn't work for me. You know, some it works for the first time. Some it takes several, some it never does. Um, just never, you know, that wasn't my thing, but I tried many times. You know, the story goes on and on and on. I mean, what specifically yeah. do you want to know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, I'm, I'm very familiar with crack cocaine. Uh, so for the people that are listening, because uh, the exposure is so like, like I think that that's like, that's where I want to hit on for now because okay. I think that people are so disconnected from the reality. Like I'm from Brooklyn, New York, you know, like we, we had crack for a while. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like I, I was hustling uh, when I was 15 and 16. Like I hooked up with a lot of older guys and it's crazy, right? Like, like right. Our, our lives intersect different generations, different places, but like there's some, there's, there's an intersection point. And uh, I, I think that it's a huge disconnect for a lot of people because they're at home and they're like, oh, like that's not me, right? But yeah. like, if you take the word, well, first of all, let's, let's take crack for an example. How, how long does a high last with crack? Um, not long, I, you know, I would say at the end of my addiction, I was taking a hit every five minutes. Perfect. So something that I actually like to, um, cause I know a lot of addicts, like I, I'm a, I'm a former addict to a lot of things. Um, like <laughs> I, I honestly believe that there's, do you, do you have kids? I do. I have three kids. You single mom? Um, well I'm single, but my kids are 32, 29 and 20. So they're but all out on their own. Like, like single mom, like, yeah. like. Part, part, even for one day, like I believe that single moms deserve a lot of praise because they're like the superheroes of our society. Yeah. Um, they hold everything together. Like the things that they're able to do is like superhuman. Like they, sh they should have a fucking single mom Marvel character. Well, thank um, you for that. Yeah. Yeah. So, and on the other end of that, like I think that the, there's two most powerful people in the whole world, like in the whole, on the whole fucking planet. Like I don't care where you live two types of people single mm -hmm. moms and addicts so yeah. like like because like i don't know anybody that'll get you a bumper for a specific car at three o'clock in the morning yeah like an addict like you they just need a direction like we right. we just need a direction to look at and like sometimes we just wind up in the wrong direction that well the right direction maybe you don't appreciate the current direction if we never experience the other one I, I think, Rome, anyone that survived addiction and lived through it is a natural born entrepreneur because the links and the manipulation and the, the resiliency that we have, we can accomplish any fucking thing. I mean, we can, you know, Anything. so it's like you have to put forth in your business the same, the same that at three o'clock in the morning in the snow when you needed a hit of crack cocaine and you were willing to walk barefooted in a blizzard to get it, that same you know, passion needs to go into your business. Fuck, you are, you are a savage in the, <laughs> in the best way possible. I love it. All right, so, so a lot of people, a lot of people are like, "All right, crack." Like, there's, there's no crack around here. Great. Okay, yeah. fill in the blank. Crystal meth. Fill in the blank. Uh, Percocets, oxycontins, anything, anything. Sex. 
anything that your doctor can prescribe, anything that you'll stumble your ass into on a lonely, dark day, like anything and any of those things will take you down the path. Absolutely. So yeah, yeah, we're like a a lot, like I I used to look away um, when I used to see like struggle and suffering and, and at a certain point, like then I got addicted to struggle and suffering. And that's what I wanted to see because like, that's the underbelly. Like that's, yeah. that, that's the thing that we don't want to see in the world. Right. We turn away from it. We want to look at the, the rich, the famous, the beautiful, but we don't see what's going on behind those Instagram posts, that's the addiction, right. the, the self-hate, the loathing. I mean, it's, it's, it's so, it, there's so much. It's like, it's, we're one step away from that at, at any single moment in our lives especially right now. Okay. Beauty pageants. What was that like growing up in, in a beauty pageant? Like, was there a lot of, was there a lot of trauma that happened during those times? I don't call it trauma. I mean, you know, I can tell you, I remember, and I speak it, I say how my book starts actually. I, I remember at four years old, I think that's one of my earliest memories. I won a, a pageant called Miss Tiny Tot Review. And I'll never forget what I had on, the yellow white polka dotted dress, the long sleeve white silk gloves, you know. And when they crowned me the winner, that power that I felt, like I, that was it for me. That's all I needed. That right there showed me, you have, if you wanna feel this power, you're gonna be the winner of everything. So that started me on this journey of high, high, you know, competitiveness. I've always had that, you know, I've always been extremely competitive on the inside. Um, And I didn't really have problems with the pageants. You know, I don't think growing out through my life, um, I placed, I placed as a runner up in the Miss Texas teen pageant. And it, it actually gave me a lot of scholarships for college. You know, I was actually excited about it. It wasn't until I had my first daughter and I put her in pageants that I realized. And, you know, I was backstage and this little four or five-year-old girl didn't win. And she was, her mom had knelt down and she was in her face with her finger. And she said, it's your fault. I didn't win. Cause you didn't get me the right dress. And I'm like, Oh, hell no, we're out of here. You know, I'm not, this isn't going to be my daughter. You know, so we, we stopped that, but then I hadn't really remembered it. But when I did start writing my journey, a lot of things that I was suppressing with like little Debbie cakes or, um, you know, men or whatever it was that I was using to cover up and not have to look at myself. I remember when I started writing, it came out that my high school senior year, I sat in my chemistry class and I started pulling my eyelashes and it was like just pulling the mascara off, you know, and I sat there and pulled every single eyelash out of my eyes, every one of them. And I looked ridiculous, you know, and everybody was like, what the hell? And so I went to counseling and they told me it was, um, it was like a rebellion against the whole pageantry thing, like an internal rebellion coming out of me. Like I resented it. I didn't know I resented it, but something was going on, you know? Wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, why I asked was because I remember years ago they had that girl, John Benet Ramsey, and that was the yes. first time that I was exposed to like that that world. Cause I, yeah. I don't know, um, you know, and, um, and now there's so much coming out with like pedophilia and all that other stuff. And, and it, 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 the curiosity in me wants to ask mostly because it's like trauma, like you said, like the suppression thing, right? Like our mind, our unconscious mind wants to protect us. Like when right. it, when it doesn't think that we can handle something, it just like totally like blacks it out. Like when I was a kid, um, 
like I, I was molested when I was five and like, I didn't realize it until I was 26. Yeah. And like, it's all good. Like total forgiveness for the other person, myself, and also gratitude because like, if that didn't happen to me, then I wouldn't have become the person that I became and go through the journey. The journey is the path, like the way, you know? That's right. So um, you have to get through it. You can't skip any of it. You know, you just that, can't. That's why I ask because like, just, just genuine curiosity, you know, like that's a, it's a deep dive <laughs> that, that, mm -hmm. uh, that you took, uh, whether conscious or well, probably mostly unconscious, right? That's kind of how we work for a yeah. long time. Okay. So what was prison like? Like you're, you're a white woman from like the Midwest, right? Like, so South, all the South. The South. Yes. I'm a white educated woman from the South. It's very prissy. You know, I'm all about, you know, hair, makeup, the whole thing. Cause I was raised in the South. That's how we are. And boy, you talk about not fitting in, you know, um, it was an adjustment for me. I think more, more than getting along with the other women in there, it was about someone telling me, no, I couldn't go outside when I wanted. I couldn't eat what I wanted, when I wanted. I couldn't go take a shower when I wanted to take a damn shower. That was my biggest struggle was, you know, having, like, I could never be a military person. Like, oh gosh, you know, it would be, I don't, <laughs> I like to be the boss. I don't like to be told what to do. <laughs> That was really hard for me. Um, you learn, you learn the ropes, you learn how to fit in where you can get in, you know. Um, my, what I found to do in there that that kind of got me respected and, and kept me like the heat off of me, I guess, if you will, was I started teaching GED classes. And a lot of the women in there really wanted to get their get their GED. And so I became an asset and I, and I pivoted myself that way deliberately. Who's going to want to hurt their asset, right? Who's, who's not going to protect their asset? So I pivoted myself and put myself in that position and it served me well, very well. Um, I got, you know, a lot of um, perks, if you will, for doing it from the warden, from a lot of people. So, you know, they bought me food, they bought me, you know, clothes. They, you know, I got special privileges, got to use the phone because I was the teacher basically. and um, it worked out really well. I, I mean, fucking I, love it. Yeah. <laughs> I did I, all kinds of things. I actually started and I went to I went to Seg for it and got, got in a lot of trouble, but I actually started in running a makeup store because you can't have makeup in there, you know, and this is more jail, not the prison. In prison, you could do your makeup, but in jail, you couldn't have makeup. So I'm a chemist, I have a chemistry degree, so I'm gonna find a way to have my lips colored and some mascara on my face, you know? So I would start just using the products we had. I would take coffee and smash it up and use foot cream and make base for your face to make it colored. You know, the coffee would color it. I took wow. toothpaste and black ink and used a toothbrush and made mascara. And it worked really great until you cried and it burned like hell, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a really funny story about it. I'm actually thinking about a, doing a book about all these little jail tales, but I took um, Jolly Ranchers and dissolved them in water over a few days and shook them in an wa empty water bottle, which was illegal, but a guard gave it to me. And uh, I put it in my hair and scrunched it because I have really curly hair. And so on court days, the girls would buy this from me and use it. So on court days, it was a type of like a little hairspray. One day I used it, I came back from court. I had gone outside to do my walking because that's all you can do is walk in a cement yard. And I got attacked by some honeybees. 
And I had to run inside and jump and just scared. Like they were all swarming me because of the sugar, you know? So that, that product went away, but like I made all kinds of crap in there and people pay me good for it too. I love it. All right. So I, I, I want to stay on that for a second, right? Like deep dive crack addiction, like trauma, shame, guilt, like medical school to prison, right? Like now you're in prison. Um, I mean, you could, you could just go down the woe is me route, but like you, you start giving, you start creating like a giving environment where maybe survival at first, right? But also like, that's kind of like what you do. It seems like that's what you're into. You're into that thing, giving. Well, it wasn't like that at first. Let me back up because I don't, I don't want to have anybody misconceive, mis, you know, misconstrue what I'm saying here at first. It was really hard. Now I had just killed someone. So I'm emotionally torn up to begin with. Um, I've never been suicidal, but to have that survivor's guilt, knowing you're the one in the wrong every day to breathe was a struggle for me. Um, just to find something that I wanted to live for. I mean, I was facing 40 years. I thought it was over for me. I thought I was done. I not think I was ever going to see my kids or anything. And so um, it was really, really hard for me. And that's where the writing really came in for me and saved me because had I not started that journaling and writing my life story to my, just for myself, um, I don't know that I would have made it out of there. I mean, I was getting threats. Now this is the beginning, like the first seven, eight months is what we're talking about before I went to prison. I was getting threats from this, this woman's family. They were going to come in, they call them hot shots where they stick a needle in your arm of heroin and kill you. I would sleep balled up as far away from the bars as I could so that no part of my body could be reachable through the bars because I was terrified that I was going to die. Someone was going to shoot me up with heroin in my sleep. I mean, wow. it, it was hard. It was really, you never go into the showers. You never knew who was planning what because I got threats constantly. And on top of that, the town that it happened in is not the town I was from. And it's a crooked little Louisiana town, you know. Uh, everybody pays everybody to do everything. And so the two girls that, that assaulted and attacked me, which is what caused the wreck, they weren't charged with any of it, but they were picked up on prostitution uh, warrants and came, put them in the same jail as me, same population with me. So now I'm having to deal with that shit too and face them. One of the girls, um, after about eight weeks, um, she came to me and apologized and had a lot of remorse. And she and I started talking, come to find out she was a product of her environment. Her mom started prostituting her at 12 years old to feed her mom's addiction to crack. So it's all she knew. This was her way of life on the streets. It's all she knew. Young, beautiful girl. And um, I, I kind of got her into the Bible. We started praying together. I helped her get her G, you know, we started studying for a GD. She was in and out of jail, in and out of jail. I'm, of course, I'm stuck, stuck there, you know. Well, I ended up going to prison, um, found out a few years after I got out of prison that she had overdosed and died. But it was, uh, you know, it's a survival thing. You just got to find what works at the time you need it to. You know, there's a time that you need to be fearful because that's going to save you. And there's a time you learn where you can fit in because that's going to save you too. Wow. So what, what was the shift for you from fearful to like, all right, I got to do something about it? Well, it's a beautiful story, actually. Um, I call it there's two beautiful twists to my story. One is my grandbaby. And the second one is um, this, the middle of the night, the bars opened up in my jail cell and a lady came in crying. 
She was drunk. I gave her a t-shirt to wear, fixed her some commissary coffee. I listened to her crying in Babylon for a couple hours. I didn't know her. She didn't know me. And she was crying about her wife. She was married to a woman that had cancer. Her wife was um, suicidal, had tried to kill herself a few times. And she, um, she died and she missed her tremendously. But at the same time, she was glad that, that she wasn't suffering with the cancer. We went to bed, didn't think anything of it. The next morning we went up to general population when everybody comes out of their rooms and people are whispering and pointing at us. And, you know, we look at each other like, what are we supposed to fight? Who the hell are you? And somebody hollered out, that's the bitch that killed your wife. And I looked at her and I said, she had cancer. And she looked at me, she said, you're a nice lady. Because see those two girls, when it happened, told everybody, I ran this woman down in her yard over a drug deal. I didn't see her. My car was sliding out of control. She just happened to be in the wrong place, you know? Um, so what it did is it gave this woman closure that her wife had, wasn't into any kind of drugs. It wasn't a drug deal. And it gave me that one tiny sliver of hope because my Christian upbringing, you know, I was taught my whole life, if you commit suicide, your soul doesn't go to heaven. So this was my silver lining. This was the one thing positive I could find out of this horrific hell is that by God, I killed her, but I saved her soul and she's in heaven. And that's what I use. And that was where it turned for me. That's when I stopped being afraid. And I started knowing I could live at that point. I felt like, okay, I can live now. I can live through this. Let's, 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 let's pick, pull yourself up. Let's get it together. Wow. Yeah. Holy shit. God, God is crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> like she should have never been in there. The universe is a crazy place. Yeah, but she should have never been allowed in there with me. They let her in there. You know, they're not supposed to, those are enemies. I killed her freaking wife, you know? Wow. She could have killed me. Yeah. Intense. Could have, would have, should have, right? But incredible, incredible, like healing for both people for both. and the people around that are just like blown away by that thing that's going on. Wow. It's, it's crazy. Like you couldn't make this shit up. Seriously. I mean, real <laughs> life is so much crazier than fucking any fiction you can make up. Like by far. by far. By far. Who did you have to become to let go of the shame and the guilt? Well, see, my story is also sprinkled with a lot of domestic abuse. I ended up marrying my drug dealer, which I didn't know was an abuser, um, but he quickly became one. Um, and that went on for a long time, many years. He used the drug to, he would break my nose, punch me, whatever. And then, and then I'd never been around this. You have to remember, I came up from a nice middle-class family. We didn't, we weren't hell raisers. We didn't have drugs and alcohol in our family. We were perfect, but I mean, I wasn't ex exposed to that kind of life. So here I am, this confident beauty, you know, beauty queen from Texas, letting a man just beat the shit out of me you know, and running and hiding in corners because I was embarrassed of black guys or whatever. Um, when, and I tried to leave him. I tried to leave him several times. He followed me from state to state. He always came back in my life, whatever. It's my son's dad. Um, but I can tell you when that wreck happened and I went to prison, I knew I was in for a long time. That was the physical separation that I needed to get away from him long enough to make that emotional separation. And what I realized is that I didn't even know who the hell I was. I didn't know what kind of music I liked. I didn't know what kind of food I enjoyed because he dictated everything to me. So it was all about when I started that writing journey, I was, I was finding out who the hell Misty was. I had to, I had to discover who I was and learn to be that person. And then 
And then if I didn't like her, I had to figure out why and fix the shit I didn't like, you know, and it was such a self-discovery for me. And I mean, it's a work in process. We're, you know, we're always, you know, going through this, I think, in life. So what did the road to forgiveness, like self-forgiveness look like? It was ugly, you know, and I still struggle a little bit with it. It's, it just took a lot of realizing that my choices, I had to be accountable for them. Number one, I couldn't blame other people. You know, they get you nowhere. I had to be accountable for my choices. And then I had to forgive myself for those choices. And the only way that I could find peace with it is to promise that I would never make those same choices again, that I would learn that it would be a message in the learning of the mistake. Do I have your permission to share with you something that came to me uh, some time ago? Absolutely. So I, I struggled with a lot of shame and guilt from like violent crime and selling drugs and all types of shit, like even like uh, like the sexual trauma from the past. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things that really came to me, uh, like it, it was just like droplets that would come in, like through th- talking to my therapist and like through meditation or through some retreat. And then one day I was just sitting there and um, I just finished moving and uh, I was I was sitting there meditating and it, and it came to me and it was just like everything was perfect. Like like my whole life, I. I wanted to like reach some sort, attain some sort of level of perfection. And uh, it's fucked up because there, there, there's no, there's no, uh, there's no bar for it. There's nothing to reach for. There's no foothold. There's no handhold. And what came to me was just like, you are perfect already. Like you're perfect. This moment is perfect. Like everything that's ever happened in the past was perfect. And everything that's happened in the future is perfect and it's and then the next question that I asked the, the thing that came up in my head right because I have that voice and the voice is like no you're not you're a piece of shit and the, the <laughs> next question is like okay well if you don't believe that you're perfect then show me perfect and my mind couldn't have it didn't have anything to hold on to there was nothing it, it just broke my mind broke and I just sat there crying for like half an hour, maybe, maybe, I don't know, maybe more. And what I realized is just like, if, if I was God, I would hide all of the joy and all of the inner peace behind the rock of suffering and the rock of, of any, any rock that's in the road. Because if I'm God, I have a sense of humor but you know what I mean like it's like I I don't know man like I I realized I had this like realization that it was just like I'm perfect like you're perfect everything that's happened was perfect everything that's gonna happen is perfect and and the less like the less I carry of like that thing like I, I I accept it I take responsibility for what I could take responsibility for, which is everything really, but also like everything and nothing. Because on the other end of everything is like, if I'm asleep, how can I be responsible for my actions as the person I am now, as the person that was fucking sleeping? Yeah. <laughs> because like, you can't compare like yourself. I can't compare myself to 16. Like people that meet me now, mm-hmm. 
um, that knew me in the past are like, what the fuck happened to you? Yeah. <laughs> what the fuck is going on? Yeah. That's how I feel when I walk into a class reunion or something. People are like, what the hell? You know, because if you first thing I do when I walk out on the stage is I tell them, you know, um, you know, I, I didn't decide on September 18th to kill someone, but I did, you know, and I'm a crack addict. And they look at me and they're like, what the hell? This bitch, you know, what the hell? Because I don't, you know, look or act or, you know, I don't, I don't fit the part anymore. So, you know, it's just like, but that's a double-edged sword too. Because I, I know even when I was out there at, at my worst, looking all tore up from the floor up, you know, I um, always had some chapstick with some little color to it on my lips, you know, even burnt, blistered lips from that pipe. They were colored, you know, I and I could get away with uh, writing a hot check or, or swiping that stolen credit card. I could get away with it. And all that did for me was dig a deeper hole in the judicial system. It just made it worse. I mean, we were being followed. I wrote so many hot checks in the state of Texas. They were literally following us around. And I was writing down license plate, telling, telling my, my boyfriend, my husband, um, that same guy was in the line behind me at the grocery store and I cashed that check. He's like, you're high, you're stupid. What the hell? Smack, you know? And I'm like, I started writing it down and proving to him they were freaking following us. And what they were doing is they were letting us build the case to a certain dollar amount is what mm, they were doing. To make it like and a federal I, case or something, right? Yeah, but they did it. It didn't get to that far. Thank God. Um, uh, I ended up, I don't remember if I, re, if I, I don't remember what happened, um, but it stopped. And I ended up having my son and then turned myself in and started trying to pay back the restitution. And, um, you know, that's what saved me. If I had not done that, they would have really come after me. But I went to them before they came after me, I think is what saved me. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. What did you want to be when you grew up? Like surgeon. You, were, you wanted to be a surgeon? My whole life. Wow. What kind of surgeon? I, I didn't care. I, I mean, later in life, I wanted to be a heart surgeon, but I remember my poor friend, I used to push her off her bicycle in the gravel on purpose so I could take her in the bathroom and take tweezers and get the rocks out of her knees and shit. And I confessed <laughs> it to her later. I said, I used to do that on purpose. She's like, you're sick. <laughs> like, I can't help it. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I've always been into that. Like we, you know, you cut up the little pig in school or the frog. I took my fetal pig home on the bus my ninth grade year and showed it to my mom. She had a heart attack because I brought the thing home. I was just, I'm very into that. Like Dexter, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I used to make mine dance. Yeah. <laughs> my, my dad too. My dad went to nursing school years ago. And I remember, I remember he's like, oh, I would just come to class and we we're cutting stuff up and I would make the frog dance or the pig dance or whatever. Just like, I just, I wanted to cut their eyeballs open and see what was in there. Was it squishy? What was it like? You know, I was just, <laughs> yeah. That cool. Entrepreneurial curiosity, huh? Oh yeah. I had a field day with my anatomy and physiology class where you get to actually cut on people, a lot of dead people, cadavers. I loved it. <laughs> I love sick. it. <laughs> I mean, I love it. I love it. I remember I, when I was doing rotations in the hospital because I was uh, I was studying nursing, and uh, I remember they they had like some co code something which means like they need to wrap somebody died and they need to clean yeah. and wrap the dead body. So we went in there and it was me, my nursing professor, and three students. She took four students with her, and I was the only guy always, you know. Yeah. And like this, like I I, I transitioned from like selling crack and violent crime to like four years of pre-med and then nursing school 
and then like and it's a hard fucking transition it's like i don't i don't like people telling me what to do i don't like being somewhere when somebody tells me i have to be somewhere like none of that so i'm still like me but like with filters so now i'm standing in this room and this person died and we're like cleaning them i'm like oh shit did you guys hear that and they're like what and i was like oh no no nothing nothing i i it was i don't know it's like oh shit for for sure she just fucking breathed and, <laughs> and they all ran out of the fucking room <laughs> you little trickster <laughs> I, I mean i i love it i love it all right. So how did you get into writing? Like, what was like the thing that like, all right, I, I, I got to start writing. Well, as I said, I was in a little town, a little tiny parish in Louisiana. They never got me any kind of counseling. I had just killed someone. They never got me anybody to talk to, put me on antidepressants, nothing. My dad was on hospice. He was dying of pulmonary fibrosis. It took him driving three hours, going into the sheriff's office in his wheelchair with his oxygen tank saying, either get her some help or I'm going to the media with this shit. They finally started busting me out to a therapist, but that was, you know, months into this, you know, months. Um, One night, right prior to that, starting to give me the therapy help, um, my daughter, my oldest daughter, Lauren, who had the grandbaby, and by the way, my grandbaby passed away in January. She was four. but my daughter is, uh, well, this is what gets me to cry every time. My daughter is my superhero. My oldest daughter, she's an amazing woman. She was 18 at the time. I had just missed her high school graduation because I was in jail, okay? But she loved mama no matter what. And I did, you have to realize 10 years of her life leading up to her high school year, I was in and out of her life on crack cocaine, in and out of jail, not there for first dates, not there for proms, not there when she started her period. I was just on the road, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So she wrote me a letter. She said, mama, you have to forgive yourself. She said, that ex, that was an accident. She's like, I know you are killing yourself with it. You're beating yourself up. She said, write down everything that keeps you up at night, that haunts you, write it on a piece of paper, pray to God to take it from you and get rid of it. And so I listened to her and I did it. And it took me a few days and I filled up several pages front and back of specific things that I did on the drug that were just haunting me, just haunting me, little things I did to people, you know, and um, tore it up, flushed it down the, down the toilet. And what that did for me, Rome, is it allowed that wall of shame to come down just enough to where I could see inside and say, hey, shit man, I'm in pain here. I got some shit I need to deal with. You know, I had abortions when I was out there on crack cocaine and I had more than one, I had several. Some of them, they weren't so great. And um, I was hurting. You know, I would take a a hit of crack, go in, have an abortion and be picked up on the sidewalk with a a, a hit waiting for me. Like I didn't miss a step and I just killed a freaking kid, you know? And I never dealt with that pain. I never did. So that wall of shame came down long enough for me to realize I had some shit I had to deal with. And that's when I started writing. I just started writing and it, it wasn't in an order. I didn't say, Hey, I'm going to write a book. Here's, this is going to be my outline. I just sat down one day. I bought some paper and a pen on commissary and I just started writing whatever the hell came out and it flowed out of me for several months. And then trying to organize that shit into a book was the hardest part. (laughs) But I mean, that's the way it needed to come out. It needed to come out in the order it needed to. And it was like emotional vomit. It was not a book ready at all. It was just me getting that shit out of me. 
but it, I needed it. It was like an abscess and it was, you know, finally popped and it was oozing out everywhere. But that saved my life. It absolutely saved my life. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, incredible. Incredible. That, that book saved me in a lot of ways because the prison guards, um, I, I'm assuming it was some of the prison guards. I really don't know who it was, but someone went to the prosecutor, the person, uh, you know, trying to put me away for 40 years and told him I had written this, this story. He came to see me, which is unheard of. You don't get to talk to your prosecutor. He came to visit me one day and he sat and he looked through some of these tattered pages that I'd been writing on. He said, Misty, what happened to you? You don't belong here. And I said, yes, sir, I do. I've killed someone. I absolutely belong here. He said, but what has happened to you? Where did you get lost in all this? So we talked for about an hour and a half. And that man, for whatever reason, if it was God, I don't know what it was, but he went back to that judge and he told him, you know, he asked to, to lower my charge from vehicular homicide, which carried a 40-year sentence and is a violent crime, down to negligent homicide, which is a nonviolent crime, carried a five-year sentence. So that saved my medical license in nuclear medicine, and it gave me a, a much, much lesser sentence. So that story saved me in many ways, many ways. Wow. I'm extremely blessed. I believe Looking back, I know I was brought, I'm always been a strong person. Like I've always been that resilient one that could conquer and do and you know, push forward no matter what. And I, I know God used me and brought me through that shit for a reason, you know? Um, and I'm just, I'm proud today to say I'm not wasting that pain anymore. I'm out there using it now. And I, I'm proud of that. Yeah. I mean, it saved your life and I'm sure it's going to save thousands, if not millions of other people's lives that like, I mean, we right now are in the highest, uh, probably highest amount of people per capita on, um, on some sort of substances. Um, we are the most addicted we've ever been. Uh, and not, not just to, um, to fucking to drugs. Social yeah. media is the same thing. There's oh, there's cool. girls out there sucking dick for fucking um for My, likes and uh, shout outs. Yeah, hundred percent. Like it's the same addiction. Yeah. It's the same yeah. same addiction. Just this one's prettier. Like crack crack just makes your teeth fall out and stuff eventually too. You know, but like yeah. this stuff is like it it's crack might be realer. <laughs> you know, like this. Yeah. Is, it's crazy. Yeah, you know, there's, so. there's a chapter in my book called Never Never Say Never. And it, I, I put that in there specifically because I remember when I first went to my very first rehab, hearing the stories of these women, things they did, and I'm thinking, oh, God, I'll never do that. Are you kidding? You know, control yourself, child. What the hell? I'll never do that. Well, there is not anything I wouldn't do for that hit of crack cocaine. And I found that out real, real hurrying in a fast, uh, you know, fast way that if we continue on, there will be a day that you will cross that line. Uh, it don't matter who you are, where you came from. It doesn't matter how educated you are. Nothing matters. Keep going on that addiction. And there's going to be that day you will do those things you said you will never do. A hundred percent. Yeah. The road looks the same. I, I've, I've, I've experienced a lot of crackheads and I've experienced a lot of people with addictions and each addiction obviously has its own look, mm -hmm. but, uh, but it's just the content is different, but the context is exactly the same for all of the addictions. Yeah, um, yeah it's, it's, 
I want to say it's sad, but it's not like it's just the reality of life, right? Like the the light, the dark, like it's just like we we get to experience it all. And like some people come out of it like you and they're able to uh, touch the lives of a lot of people with the stories that you earned. Mm -hmm. You earn those stories like you earn those stories. You have your badges of honor that. Like there's not a lot of people that come out of crack cocaine. Three percent. Three percent. That's what I was told. I was told only three when I was in rehab, I was told only three percent would ever make it on the other side of addiction. And that's actually what started my journey on the whole speaking and re-letting re my book out is after Eliana was born. I, like I said, I was very distant. Um, I felt guilty. I, every time I held her, I felt disconnected because she was blind and deaf. She couldn't suck. She couldn't cry. I thought for sure I caused all that. So once I started first, I stopped and said, okay, first of all, God that I know doesn't love like this. Second of all, they told us only 3% were ever going to make it. Shit, I'm standing here nine years clean. You know, that's got to mean something somewhere. So I, that's when I realized, you know, God saved me for a reason that day. And it wasn't to stay, you know, behind that book in shame and guilt and never let it out. That's when I turned it all around, rewrote the book out of accountability, forgiveness, and decided because it was hard. And I'm not going to lie. I remember Habitude Warrior, Eric Swanson, was the very first time I ever spoke my truth on stage about killing someone. And I was petrified because I was so worried about what everybody was going to think about me. That's all I could think about. Was, what are they going to think? What are they going to say? Oh my gosh. And it took a few times for me to realize it wasn't fucking about me. It wasn't about me. I had already lived through it. I had already survived it. It wasn't about me at all, but it was about that message and that person that was out there that needed to hear it. And once I got that through my stubborn head, I didn't care anymore. I said, let them fucking judge me, but they better do it from the corner because the person in that chair behind them needs to hear it. They need to get the hell out of my way. So I didn't care. I just all in at that point. I mean, they for sure wouldn't judge you to your face. You'd shank them. Absolutely. <laughs> With my homemade chip. Absolutely. <laughs> because <laughs> <laughs> I know how to hide them too. <laughs> no, no, catch no. them in the bathroom. <laughs> Yeah. Oh yeah. I'd catch them at the most vulnerable time. I'd, I I'd love be smiling it. the whole time too. And I would look so innocent. <laughs> I mean, for sure. You have a very innocent look to you, which <laughs> yeah, guys don't, don't judge a book by its cover. Don't ever judge a book by its cover. Uh, there's a lot of uh, wisdom and love inside of every book because yeah. somebody took the time to write it time to earn. They earned, they earned those pages. And the courage, it takes a lot of courage too to come out with your story. You know, I had done nuclear medicine before I, went, I got graduated with nuclear medicine before I got into med school. So thankfully, because of that charge being lowered, I was able to keep that license. But it took time to get back in. I mean, I have a lot of felonies on my record and people wouldn't hire me. It took persistence, it took stamina, it took honesty, transparency with employers to be able to find my way back in that door. So once I did, I worked really hard at, at regaining trust and putting, a, you know, a good name for myself in the industry. So once I did all that, I didn't want all these new people like these doctors and these people that I was working with to know about that ugly person. And I was ashamed of her. And, you know, we can't walk around like that because that 
those experiences are priceless knowledge. I mean, it's just priceless knowledge. If you're wasting your pain, then you're, you're not, you know, it's just, it's just a waste. I'm going to say, because people need to learn from us. That's why I started that whole hashtag be that one movement because I encourage people to step up and share so we can judge less and mentor more and stop, you know, judging each other and competing with each other, start lifting each other up and helping each other through easing the suffering out there. You know, if I could tell someone, if it was my own kid, what if it was my own kid that got hooked on drugs? You know, I'd want to use what I knew to help them so they didn't have to experience what I did because it was a freaking hell on those streets. It was a hell living that life. You know, and I don't wish that on anyone. There's a there's an old Zen parable uh, about a student. Uh, he asks the teacher, he's like, is there heaven or hell? And he goes, yeah. Oh, he goes, is there a hell? He goes, yes. And like super fast, he just gave him the answer. And he goes, uh, who, like, uh, he's like, will I go to hell? He goes, or, or he's, I'm paraphrasing, but it was like, mm-hmm. he's like, he's like, uh, how do you go to hell? He's like, I'm gone. <laughs> and he was like, that what do you he- mean? And he was like, what do you mean? He goes, well, if I don't, he's like, why would you go? You're such like, um, like a benevolent man. He goes, if I don't go, who's going to come back and teach you? Oh, there you go. Very good. Very you can't, good. You, you, what do you, what do you teach from? You know, what do you teach from? You teach from some book that you read? No, you teach from life. Like you teach from practice. We have a lot of teachers out there nowadays that aren't practitioners. They didn't mm-hmm. practice life. So they're running around teaching things that, uh, somebody pissed down the mountain to them uh, that their teacher learned from their teacher. And then it's just like, but they didn't get to experience the life. That's right. You, would, you wouldn't want someone to operate on your heart that just read a book on how to do it. You want somebody that's done it before, right? <laughs> yeah. And maybe even somebody that's fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like maybe yeah. even somebody that's fucked up. You know, uh, there, there was a, there was a story about like a pilot that like messed up a, a plane. Like he, he like did something wrong, messed up a plane and, and his general came to him and he was like, well, what happened? And he talked to him, he told him and he was like, okay, like, let him go. And they were like, you're not going to, you're not going to fire him. He goes, why, why, why would I get rid of him? He's like, I just, I just invested like $10 million into training him. Like that's yeah. never going to happen again. Yeah, oh, you learn from your mistakes. <laughs> yeah, sometimes we do. Yeah. So, what does what does your life look like now? Like, what are your days look like? Super freaking busy. I put in about fifty plus hours in nuclear medicine uh, in my job, and then I run my talk show Tuesdays and Thursday nights. So I come straight in from work, right to the laptop, and run my show. Um, then I do my interviews like with you on opposite days, you know, um, and the whole time I'm trying to launch online courses, I'm trying to get a retreat together for when COVID lifts and we can, you know, there's just, it's constantly busy and, and that's not a good thing. I mean, I, I don't self-care enough, you know, I, I burn myself out pretty easy and uh, my family is pretty on my ass about it right now. But, you know, when you have a passion for something, you just, you got to get through it. What, what times do you usually, so I, I ask all of my guests, like what their daily life looks like, like what time do you go to bed? What time do you wake up? What kind of food do you eat? Like, do you, what kind of self-care do you do? Do you have leisure activities? I, okay. 
I go to bed generally anywhere between 12 and two in the morning, just depending on what's my brain's got concocting. I get up at six. So I, I sleep three to five, four, five or six hours. And I don't sleep a lot, um, which is bad. And I'm working on that. Um, I'm going to send you some stuff that'll help with that. Thank you. Yeah. And I, I take melatonin, but it just, uh, my brain just didn't want to shut off. Um, I had, uh, you know, and being transparent, I'll share this with the audience because it's really on my heart, really heavy right now too. I had a gastric sleeve surgery done um, five years ago and I have since overeaten around it and stretched it back out and there's some issues with it. So I've gained a little bit of the weight back. Um, and so I'm really thinking about doing a revision surgery and I, I get so damn mad at myself because I'm so strong in so many areas. I can take the person next to me and pull them up out of shit so easy. When it comes to doing it for myself, it's like, I don't know, I feel like what it is. Like, there's, like I said, we're all a work in progress. So that I'm still battling with something because there's something that makes me want to eat. There's something that makes me not love myself, does not eat the shit that I eat, right? There's something that, makes me not love myself enough to, no matter what time it is, get my ass outside and exercise, no matter how tired I am to make it a priority to love myself enough. So, you know, I, I battle with that still. And so my diet is up and down. Some days I'm, I'm on a diet and I'm doing real well and I eat real healthy. And then some days I just say, well, fuck it. You know, and I eat a whole bag of wintergreen lifesavers, you know, cause that satisfies me. <laughs> it <gives> me joy. <laughs> and I'm, when I say that, I love it. You laugh, but when I say that, it's fucking true. I drove to, I drove a three hour drive to go to work because I do contract travel work and I ate a whole bag, fucking 50 of them, a whole bag of them in one day. And that's what I do to myself. And then I'll like jump up and say, what the hell are you doing? And then I'll get back on track, you know, but um, that sucks. That dealing with that, that whole obesity thing is, is really hard. Um, and what I like to do is I love camping. I enjoy going outside, which is the weirdest thing. I love hiking. I love kayaking. We go, we do all of that. You know, I love going boating. If to know my life, people would say, how the hell does she weigh 200 pounds? Because I'm on the go constantly, but it's the shit I put in my mouth. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> like you said, like God, God is, uh, interesting and it puts people in front of us uh uh wellness is one of my superpowers well i i can see because i see how fit you are <laughs> and i'm sitting here thinking this guy like i can tell you put your your health first above all i can see that in you. it wasn't always so yeah right it yeah. wasn't always so but the last 12 years have been a, a very crazy healing journey um from I mean, from depression and anxiety, from heavy metals and parasites and toxins. Oh my and gosh. Yeah, I mean, we, wow. we've got some crazy shit inside of us. Uh, wow. But, you know, um, I'm, I'm like a fine wine at this point. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm figuring out the rhythm and we'll definitely talk afterwards. I'd, I'd love to support you on that journey. Um, like you... People like you deserve support. People like you need to be supported because, um, I mean, you're like, you're just, you're a person on a mission. You're a maniac on a mission. And yeah. like, 
maniacs need other maniacs to support them like that that shit is important like um it's like that i i don't know honestly like we have so much divisiveness in our country and people say um people say it's because of tribalism i don't believe that that's true i believe we're lacking tribalism um i believe that but this is just my current subscription of what I believe in. I can change in the next 30 <laughs> seconds. So, but like what comes to me is like the reality is like we, we, we have so many people in our lives right now and like we don't know any of them. We think we do. We have like these fucking like little tidbits, snippets, but like we don't share eye contact, touch, feel, campfires, stories. Like we have to fucking um, like, check our calendars 84 times to make a meeting happen. People don't just come over to with food. Yeah. Like it's just, it's so fucking weird. Um, It's so weird. And I, I I don't know, like, and I think it's awesome in a lot of ways because like, I think that we would only appreciate like those ancient traditions and those, those, those things that came from our ancestors. Um, family right but not family by blood only but family by by yeah by like by feel by like by love and sometimes hate too right like sometimes hate too but like together you know like like a tribe like a pack like like a like you just weather through it together you know bad I, i remember growing up you know my family See, I'm 53 now, so that gives you an idea here on the timeline. But growing up, when I was like grade school level, you know, I remember our neighbors stopping by for coffee. They played dominoes in the backyard on the weekends. I mean, shit, nobody has time for that now. And with the people that do, I'm so envious of them because I would love to have that that downtime. You know, and I choose that what I do, I choose to overbook myself, but that's because I have a mission I'm on. But you know not a lot of people do it and it's um they don't have time for it they they feel it's a waste of time to sit and and just talk to people it's a waste of time you know you got to be moving fast you got to you might producing something you got to schedule something you got to zoom something you know and sometimes it's good just to sit and listen especially to the elderly oh my gosh there's so much knowledge there i i felt like that for a really long time because my my story was i'm not enough so i'm not good enough um, so I have to consistently keep trying to prove it. And mm-hmm. then um, I'm, I'm not, I'm worthless. I'm, wor- I'm unworthy. So I have to keep creating in order to show the whole world um, how worthy I am. Um, but in reality, like what hit me recently with that whole perfect thing um, a few months ago was, um, or no, the perfect thing was like a month ago, but before that was like balance, balance and alignment. Like I I needed more balance and alignment in my life. Like I was unbalanced. Um, I was uh, swayed by life's ups and downs. Um, I was the tire on the wheel instead of the hub. (laughs) The, The center is always centered. It's the tire that goes up and down. And, um, yeah, I was being controlled by life's ups and downs. And I, I've invested these last, this last year really of healing, well, really just balance, 
healing happens by itself when you're balanced, like when you're true, when you're truly planted uh, like a tree and you might sway, but you don't break, you know? God, so. it's just crazy what you're saying. You know, nothing just happens. You don't know, believe that T.D. Jake says that. And what, you know, we've already found our lives have, have already intermingled in the medical, you know, there's so many things going on here, but those exact words you just said, a tree will sway and then it's about it breaking because we just rode out a hurricane at my daughter's house and we were watching the big oak in her front yard. She was scared. She's pregnant. She was scared all day. The tree was going to fall because it kept swaying. We said, that's what trees are supposed to do. They're supposed to give with the wind. We left the living room, went and sat down at the kitchen table, buttering our rolls, hadn't even taken a bite of food. And that damn tree fell through their house in the living room, right where we were standing three minutes earlier. And it was like, yeah, they sway, but if they're pushed hard enough, they're going to fall. The roots and all just came up and that thing fell on top yeah, of the house. A hundred percent because they're strong, right? Oak is yeah, strong. But, but um, mm -hmm. if you look at the bamboo, you want to be like the bamboo. You don't want to be like the oak. The oak no. breaks break. because life is always going to be stronger. There's always like, you if it's not a prison, harder. Prison. if it's not prison, it's killing somebody. If it's not <laughs> like, there's there's just there's always something and like it doesn't matter how strong you are i've seen the strongest men and women break period right. like it's just it's gonna break you if that is the thing that you hold on to is strength broken 100 percent. i don't give a fuck what you are there's always gonna be something if it's not right away it's time time will break um the bamboo the bamboo is a little bit better right why because it, it it'll if, if the snow falls on the bamboo, right, it'll shake itself off and come back up. On the oak tree, enough snow falls, the branch breaks. Breaks it off, yeah. But the best is water. You want to be like water. Water mm -hmm. fits into the tiniest crevices. Water is the strongest thing that we have. Well, on this planet, at least. <laughs> yeah. So it, and, and it's kind of like, I, I live by Red Rock over here in Vegas. You can see holes in rocks that the water was dripping on mm -hmm. it felt forced its way out yeah crazy all right so what are some of the things that you're doing right now on your on your mission like what does what does your um what does your gift look like to the world Right now, I think my gift to the world is my show. Um, it's fairly new. I've, I'm on my 39th episode, so it's fairly new. Um, I started the hashtag Be That One movement last year, encouraging people to step up and share. Um, and I wanted a platform for that to happen. And I waited and procrastinated around perfectionism. I wanted the right logos, the right look, the right show opener, the right music. And it was never happening. And finally, Don Fawcett, a friend of mine, he's like, just freaking do it. Who cares about that shit? It's the message they care about. So I listened to him and I just did it. And he was right. Like, I'm going along my way. But that platform is what I want. I was missing. I needed, I was encouraging people to do it, but I wasn't providing a space for them to do it. So now there's a space for them to step up and be that one and share their truth. And I've had several people that have never shared before that are sharing on my show. It's called Dare to Share. And it's freedom, it's liberating. And, um, you know, there's no judgment there at all. It's a safe place. And it's just, uh, it's beautiful. And I'm very blessed. It's going very well. And uh, I think that's the gift right now, my biggest gift I'm focusing on right now that I have. 
but I could, I think my biggest gift that I'm going to offer in my lifetime, I think that I feel deep down in my heart, my signature to this world is going to be the right to ignite women's empowerment retreats. And it's funny, earlier you mentioned something about crying and and a campfire. And this is how I always say this, because because my my retreats are going to be small, 25 women or less, because it's an intimate before and after photos. It's all about using writing, art therapy, music therapy, um, journaling. But there's going to be some ugly, ugly crying around a campfire. You know, just women strip, no makeup, no, no impressing anybody. We're just going to freaking ugly cry and get the shit out of us we need and then form those, those real bonds, not the fake ones on social media, form those real woman to woman, eye to eye, heart to heart, pain to pain bonds and walk out of that three day retreat, having that sister that we can connect with, having that, that piece of paper and pen that we now have learned how to connect with. And I feel in my heart of hearts that that's where the true healing that I know how to offer is going to happen. So I'm excited for that to happen. I'm, I'm shooting for first quarter. If COVID could give us a break, man, I'm shooting for first quarter. I'm supposed to have them in July and everything's been shut down. So um, I just really feel in my heart that is going to be my, that's going to be where I really groove. <laughs> I fucking love it. You know why? I love retreats. Like that, yeah. that, that's like my, I love touching my students. Yeah. I love being able to like touch my students, feel their energy, them feel my energy. Um, I love humans. Like I love like, yeah, for sure. I actually made, I, uh, I spoke about it with the guest and it was the first time I shared that when I hit 50 episodes, I'm on like, I have like 28 recorded 22 that I've already put out. When I hit 50, I'm announcing one of my, uh, my first retreat for this new awesome. uh, thing. So it's funny that you mentioned that. We're, we're aligning a lot, aren't we? We really a lot. are. A lot, but, and you sure. know, a lot of people have been on my ass because they say, pivot, pivot during COVID. Do your, do your retreats on a summit. No, it is not the same thing. What I want to <laughs> offer is much, much different than that. I don't want any media to be a part of it. What I have to offer is going to be, that's why I want to keep them small. They're going to be intimate. They're going to be personal. They're going to be fucking real. You know, they're going to be real. I love it. Yeah. I mean, that's what we're missing nowadays. We don't need more fucking summits. We don't need more information. We just need to connect and like, and get naked. Yeah, exactly. In, in, in the most spiritual sense, like fucking let it go. Absolutely. Let it go. And like, find that, find that balance between like, being okay with yourself and being okay with another as opposed to like not being okay all the time (laughs) we need to get together and do a retreat and call it let's get naked that would really draw the people with it it. for sure it'll be it'll be like a a wellness and healing retreat it would be awesome i think it would be really great all right so yeah it would be awesome what are you learning right now like what are some of the things are, are you are you a constant like learner um I mean, you know, I had to learn to open my eyes to the things around me because I I was very like this, you know, and once I learned that when I stopped talking and listened more, I could learn things. Um, I just get really tired of people that are in a position that I want to say like in, in stature higher than me in this profession, like telling me what to do and tell me what I should do or how I do it because I'm very different. 
it's going to come out of me the way it's supposed to and in its own time, you know, yes, I listen and I try to learn from them, but I don't want to mimic or, or, you know, follow a, a recipe like anybody else. I just want to be unique and be me. And I think that's what I'm learning is not to try to be what they look like. You know, yeah. they look successful. They look this part, but I don't have to do that to feel successful or to help people. I can do it my way too. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, as, as soon as people, as soon as I hear the word should, I ask people to not shit on me. Don't shit all over me. <laughs> don't don't shit don't shit all over me because if yeah. you if I start shitting, like I have very very healthy bowel movements and <laughs> well, it's gonna be everywhere. All right, wow. so if you weren't um, in nuclear medicine and um, speaker, writer, entrepreneur, what what would you be? Mm. So this is the imagination round. We're starting the imagination round. I always have had a passion for wanting to fly a plane. I actually tried to join the Air Force, um, but by the time I made up my mind to do it, I was past the age requirement and my vision was bad. So um, I've always had that like love. I've always loved, I think the, the physics of it just amazes me and, it, and I'm infatuated by it. So I want to do it. Yeah. I love it. What is one thing you would love to upload into the minds of everyone in the world? The courage to be transparent because it's given me so much freedom. Wow. The courage to be transparent. Besides your book that we're going to include a link for in the, in, in the, po um, whatever, in the, <laughs> in the podcast, I don't even know what to call it. Um, what is one book that you find yourself recommending uh, regularly? Well, I, you know, I don't even know. Cause I don't, I don't do a whole lot of reading. I just don't, um, I, I do a lot of blog reading. I don't necessarily do okay. like book, you know what I mean? I just kind of mm -hmm. yeah, read whatever sense. comes my way. There is a book though that uh, I don't even remember the name. It's a little black book by Brendan Burchard. I forget the name of okay. it. I like him. Yeah. I like him too. Um, you know, I, I get so pissed that people, you know, Brandon Bashar, Grant Cardone, because I'm that sucker and I swear I'm not going to be and I don't fall for it often. Every now and then, one of them over the top salesmen, they'll get on there and they'll sucker me to that freaking course that I pay $17 for. And by the time I check out, it's $129. And I've never watched any of that shit they've sent me. None of it yeah. because I never have time. I'm so mad about it, you know? So yeah, <laughs> I, I get I get it. I I was in that boat for a really long time. Uh, I just stopped. Yeah, I mean it's good material. I'm not downing for their sure. material. I'm pissed at myself for falling into the trap and not making the time to to, to learn from it. You know, it's overwhelming. Yeah, it is it's overwhelming. There's a lot. There's a lot there on the internet right now. I feel like uh, actually, from what I'm understanding, uh, but. Um, we're moving out from the information age into the experience age. So that's going to be really interesting right now. I mean, which makes sense why like people are like, like you and me are like retreats, right? Like yeah. we want to touch people. I'm tired of the fucking internet. Yeah, like I want to touch people. Like I seen kids nowadays playing on the weekends outside. So I was curious, right? Cause like, I'm, I'm just genuinely a curious human being. So I asked the kids and their parents, are you just tired of being on a fucking computer all day? Like you thought you wanted it. Yeah. 
right? But now you have to sit in front of the fucking computer for 10 hours. Do you really want it? And they're just like, I just want to be outside. Just want to be outside. Oh, yeah. Like, like this thing is not working. Yeah. All right. And it's depressing because I, you know, I remember in jail, that was one of my biggest depression things is that I couldn't freaking go outside. I couldn't see outside, you know, and when they were mad at us, we got punished. Well, like they would close the yard. Like we would go outside for a month at a time. I think they have like 30 days and they have to let you out. They would push it. And I mean, it was hard because there's something about looking up into the sky and seeing the clouds and feeling the sun on your skin. It's just, it renews you. You know, yeah. and when you don't have it, it's very depressing. For sure. For sure. The infiniteness. Yeah. If what, all right, if you could have uh, a custom made ice cream combination made for you, what would it be? Pistachio almond and cheesecake. Ooh, I love it. <laughs> if, you, if you were a food, what kind of food would you be? Or what food would you be? my god if i was a food Mm -hmm. um something sweet i'm sure something with sugar um golly i don't even know how to answer that uh italian cream cheesecake Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i used to crush those yeah if you were an animal what kind of animal would you be oh man that's an easy one i'm a leo some uh, fierce lion all the way i love it Mm-hmm. If you were a vehicle, what kind of vehicle would you be? Practical side of me is want to say a really sturdy SUV that's all around practical, but I, I would say more like a um, a Ferrari, you know, because that's Ooh. my inner side is very feisty and speedy and flashy. I love it. Yeah. What is or your Ducati en- bike or Ducati motorcycle? Wow. <laughs> what is your Enneagram number? I don't, what does that mean? Oh, it's a personality test. It's like an ancient personality test that they used in multiple different civilizations. Um, it, it's very revealing. If you're into wow. transparency, it's a very interesting personality test that they use it. Um, uh, they use it in like some sects of Christianity. Um, they use it, uh, basically it talks about nine archetypes, that there's only nine human archetypes. And these nine archetypes, this is the, this is the fucking crazy thing. This, this thing like <laughs> blew my fucking mind. Cause I went deep for like seven months, eight months, uh, just like studying it and trying to figure out like what's going on. It's like this ancient shadow work. And what it talks about is like each one of those numbers has a specific need. Like uh, I have, I'm the number eight and my, and it's like the most intense number the, and my need, like this is my genuine need, is to go against. Like I've always needed something to go against. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it's created a lot of fires in my life, you can imagine. Um, What's it called? It's called the Enneagram. Will uh, you send that to me? I'll send it to you. I'll send it to you. It, it's like a 40 minutes of like answering questions and then it gives you like a breakdown and then there's some books you can read to like really dive deep there's a lot of stuff you can let go of through that process well you Uh, got me all in now i gotta do it now (laughs) yeah well the thing that really messed me up um was i started to find other eights and i have like four or five other eights in my life and what i realized was that we all and the book said it 
that we all have the same childhood trauma. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Which was which was we had to grow up earlier than we were supposed to. And that's that specific number across the board that I'm aware of. Okay. Really cool. I'm gonna send it to you. It, it's it's interesting if you have the time to like uh dive into it. Well, I'll make the All time. Right. I was gonna say though, you know, real quick, it's funny because I didn't even know I had childhood trauma until I started writing later, later, way later in my thirties and 40, you know, I was 40 something. Uh, I didn't even know because I'd suppressed the trauma with little Debbie cakes or, you know, dancing and baton twirling and beauty pageants and whatever that I never even knew it surfaced years and years later. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it always does no matter what, when, when, when we're ready, our mind like freeze it and mm -hmm. then we get to fucking work through it and integrate it and accept it and um, and use it as fuel. Yeah. Use it as fuel and not let it use us anymore. Uh, the the biggest like the one of the top one of the first questions that I ask a potential like uh, person that I want to work with. The, this is very. Where do you go when you run away? Hmm. Like, do you do you go in the pantry? Do you do you go on on your phone do you you know like it, it depends everybody has like their own coping mechanism but there's only two right like either we shut down or we run away those are the only two that's it like there's nothing else there um everything falls into those two categories or there's the third one right where it's like can you sit with it wow so this this round is called if you were dying so you're on death row <laughs> they've upgraded they've upgraded your housing <laughs> what is your last meal i don't know um probably mexican food with a lot of guacamole <laughs> Ooh, i love it shrimp tacos with guacamole probably <laughs> i love it what is your last experience and with who? It could be as long as you want. It can be as short as you want. Um, you're not in prison, FYI. Like you're out, you're out free. Um, last experience. I don't know if it's, if I want it to be my dying experience, but I don't want to die without experiencing uh, going through the pyramids in Egypt because they fascinate me. So wow. I, I just, that, you know. Alone? That's a dream. Alone or with who? Um. I wouldn't want to be alone. No, I'd want to be with someone that I cared about and that cared about me, you know, and shared okay. the same passion. I don't, I don't want to ever be alone. I'm not a loner. <laughs> I like people too much. What is your last piece of advice for the next generation? Or if not the next generation, for whoever you would like to specifically talk to, your last piece of advice? That don't be in a hurry to get there, put the brakes on, because if you get there too fast, you're not ready for it. Yeah, slow down and, and you know, go through what you need to go through so that when you get there, you're ready or you might not make it there at all. The last line or word or whatever on your tombstone. Survivor. I love it. Survivor. Now, we've talked about a lot. We've talked about prison, crack, all types of other things in between <laughs> you helping 
so many people with your story writing a book. I mean, so many synchronicities as well. Like it's, you have more of a chance of winning the lottery than some of the things that happened in that story. (laughs) And what's funny, what's, that's funny. And then there's even funnier is that every single human being on this planet has the same thing if they're paying attention. Yeah. Like, like it's, it's happening at every moment, like pay attention, like pay attention. Like the world is wow. Right. Like it's, it's, it's happening for you. Right. So now my question for you is what did we leave out? Did we not cover something? Is there something that I didn't ask? Is there something that you would like to share with the audience? Well, there's the whole, you know, we barely touched it, but there's a whole huge thing I'm passionate about is domestic violence. Um, You know, I recovered from, you know, the burns from the crack pipe. I recovered from being in prison. I recovered from the broken noses. I recovered from a lot of the physical stuff. But that emotional shit that's attached to that violent, that domestic abuse, that shit, that shit's deep. That shit's hard to recover from. And um, man, those scars are ugly and uh, they're painful. They're painful, you know, and I just want women to understand that we're better than that. And we can um, overcome it. I actually have a poem in the back of my book that I actually wrote in jail and it's, uh, it's in two pieces. I wrote part of it in jail and then I wrote part of it after I got out and decided to move forward. And it's all about. Um, Can you read it? Sure. You want me to read it? Really? Oh, yeah. yeah. It's called um, he changed. It's called you changed me. But I think you'll understand it when I read it. It's a little bit longish, but I think you'll get it when I read it. Why I wanted to say this because it's so true and it's. um so necessary this is it's called um it's actually I lied to you it's not a poem it's a chapter in my book I wrote it's called biting my tongue it starts out with then when my very abusive and psycho husband held me hostage over insane jealousy I had to bite my tongue in fear he would literally go into a rage and kill me when he slipped into his rages he spiraled out of control with wild accusations and far-fetched ideals I hated holding my tongue because I wanted to tell him I hated every single fiber in his body and how I dreamt of breaking all 206 of his bones. I visualized taking a sledgehammer and smashing him in the mouth so he could just once feel the pain he routinely inflicted upon me. I had to mute my anger in fear of his physical consequences. Being in an abusive relationship really held me timid, meek, and without identity. This was not at all the misty everyone knew. That girl was long gone with little hope of ever coming back. He used every insecurity I had and expounded on it as leverage to control me. He used my weight to put me down, yet got mad if anyone gave me any attention. He would tell me I was beautiful one day, then the next tell me I was a fat whore. He kept me spinning and bouncing around in my own head constantly. I had to wear shirts under my scrubs and fear somebody might see down my shirt if I bent over and leaned leaned over at 30 degrees just right. Ha. Why did he even care? I thought I was just a fat whore anyway. And why did he marry me if he thought so little of me? If the phone rang without anyone on the other end, I got a beating for it because it was sure to be somebody I was screwing. He assumed when I opened the mini blinds above the kitchen sink that it was a sign for the neighbor to come and get it. The cocaine completely warped his brain and caused so much paranoia. 
Sex was on his terms and only his terms. If I tried to dress in lingerie to spark his interest, he would say, what is that supposed to do for me? Just look at you. Then the next day, he brought me roses and told me how beautiful I was and couldn't get enough of me. Is this regular domestic abuse or is he truly a psychopath with a split personality? I mean, who can keep up? He would scold me in public to the point I wanted to hide behind a brush, a bush, a car, anything. Very rarely would anyone dare interfere and try and help me. I remember in grade school being taught if I was ever being raped to yell fire, not rape, because people didn't want to get involved with rape. This is sad and it just pisses me right off. He would come sit at the hospital to check up on me and make sure I was actually working and checked my phone, pager, and voicemails constantly. Once I had to go and hang films in the radiologist reading room for the on-call doctor to read the procedure I had just performed. The doctor and I had a discussion about the patient and and the scan I had just performed and it took a few minutes longer than usual. radiology reading rings are dark so the films can be seen and he assumed I was in there screwing the guy while he literally stood outside the door seriously he thought this about me that night was one of the worst beatings he gave me all I could remember caring about was me praying I didn't get called back into the hospital that night because my eyes were black and swelling almost shut my nose was busted and my lips were swollen I look like a blowfish I hate him I hate him so then the next part is now so that was written before This part is the after, and this is where the realization comes in. Looking back after being out from under his control for 12 years now, I wonder how I ever allowed all this to happen. I know he used cocaine to keep me where he wanted me, but even during the clean times between relapses, he controlled me. I finally became wise to his honeymoon phase apologies and the the mentally abusive cycle he created. He changed me. For a while, I became lifeless, hopeless, and fightless. Then after jail forced a physical separation, I began to see a little more clearly. The real me started showing up. The me buried under the fear, the shame, and the insecurity. I showed up ready to emerge and take control of my own life. I worked hard to find my inner strengths and gifts. I looked in the mirror every day and found just one thing positive to say about myself. And I said it to myself all day long until I convinced myself it was true. The more focus I put on liking than loving myself, the stronger I grew. Prison put the physical separation between us, but I made the break from him emotionally all on my own. I learned I didn't love myself and therefore I didn't feel worthy of anyone else's love either. Once I started finding things to love about me, I realized I was worthy. And just because I made a mess in my life, my life wasn't over. My mess would serve as a message for you to find yourself, love yourself and be yourself. Now is the time to pull yourself up. So although biting my tongue was hard with the volatile storm of anger raging inside me, I am thankful I did because it kept me alive. Yes, he changed me. He created this powerful, experienced, driven woman full of love, passion, and insight. He gave me the determination to fight. Now I want to fight for other women still stuck being there, biting their tongues and tell them there is hope. We can thrive without them. We can repair the damage and move forward. The emotional and physical scars may not ever go away, but they are badges of honor that we were not defeated. We lived, we evolved, we grew into our places and now we must grow into our destiny as well. Thank you, abusive husband, you changed me. Incredible, thank you. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for, thank you for you. Thank you for the journey that you've been on. Incredible, incredible, you know, Uh, the path is the way. I have a lot of passion around domestic abuse but I still have a lot of pain um, too. And I just don't think that I could submerge myself into that world right now. Um, it's a process. Yeah, for sure. For sure. It's definitely a process. Um, I, 
if you're ever interested, I can definitely share some tools with you. I have some very interesting tools that I've uh, accumulated and acquired and practiced for some time. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, thank you so much, Misty. Uh, I love you. You're awesome. <laughs> this has been great. Yeah. I feel like we know each other so much now. <laughs> sure. Humans, right? Humans. Yeah. All right. So have a beautiful rest of your evening and uh, we'll connect soon. Please. And send me that, that test thing. I would like to do it. You got it. Right. Ciao. Bye. Thank you. God bless you. God bless you.